0: Hello and welcome to Lens, the podcast brought to you by British Screen Forum. My name is John Gisby, and I'm delighted that you're listening. Welcome back. We've got a bit of a different episode today, although it's consistent with our objective in understanding the recent history of public service broadcasting so that we can be smart about how it should evolve in future. In today's conversation, I'm joined not by an industry leader or a policy expert, but by a history professor, for whom this is their specialist subject. Jean Seaton is a professor at the University of Westminster and has written one of the volumes of the BBC's official history, covering the years 1974 to 1987. And in our conversation, she goes back further than that. She traces the roots of PSB back to the social contract after the Second World War, much as Lord Putnam did, but even further to the social leveling in the trenches of the First World War. In fact, she goes, she goes on to suggest that the BBC's independence and impartiality was partly built on the civil service reforms of the 1860s. With these origins, it shouldn't come as a surprise that PSB is so deeply rooted in our national psyche and in our institutions. And it was a really fascinating and lively conversation. So I hope you enjoy listening. Delighted today to be joined by Professor Jean Seaton, a Professor of Media History at the University of Westminster, um, and official historian of the BBC. Jean, delighted to meet you, and thank you for making the time.
1: Um, I'm delighted to be here. I wrote a volume of the official history, and I think well, that's I, a better way of introducing me, actually, because otherwise it sounds like I worked for the BBC, who's never paid me anything.
0: Perfect. That um, out. But yeah, um, official historian is is is. It's still a designated title, isn't it? I mean, you're it's following the, I in just the great think footsteps it's, of Asa Briggs and others.
1: Yes, but I mean, I'm not. I'm not in the Lords, and I'm not.
0: Uh, uh, uh,
1: you know, and um I'm. I think I've. I've had a very different. If you say I've I've written a, an, a volume of the official history, perfect. that for your purposes and my purposes, much makes my relationship to the BBC. I don't speak for the BBC.
0: Perfect. 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 But well, that's, that, sorry, uh, that, no, no, good. Good. Uh, we. um So. I mean, as as, uh, as you and I have been chatting just before, I mean, the, the purpose of these conversations really is to speak to a range of people who have um, expertise and perspectives looking backwards in particular, um, and particularly over sort of the last 20, 30 years, as to, uh, I mean, our topic is what is public service broadcasting, how the BBC fits in with that. Um, and I know you're, you're actively involved uh, in, because of your understanding of where the BBC has come from and what it is, um in 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 current policy discussions around uh, around where am i going next so my my first and by far the hardest and most easiest question at the same time is from your point of view what do you think public service broadcasting is how do you define it? Public,
2: public service broadcasting is the production of
1: the the most outrageously wide range of content from news to drama, to entertainment, to game shows, to um, trivia, to radio,
2: to daftness, that whose sole object is to serve and express the interests of us, so unlike any algorithm which
1: you know may may sell you the audience for purposes you can't see though you might agree with them um the sole purpose of public service broadcasting is to in as best as it can it's not perfect it's never been perfect um to find what we are about and what our views are and what our tastes are and what our days feel like and what our years feel like. And the moment in history we're in, those are all actually really important, big things. Um, And express us and then serve us. And in that sense, it's
2: it's pretty unique Um, and it's become... Um, I'd say two things, part of the very constitution of the UK, part of
1: the way in which the world understands itself and feels like an enormously prescient set of institutional relationships, given where we are in an age of acute and extreme information disorder.
0: Fantastically articulated. Thank you for that. Um <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was a blog, what, no, no, no. I mean one
0: of the things that that I, I've sort of in in doing the research for these conversations and been digging around, I mean public service broadcasting, PSB, it trips off the tongue. And it comes up whenever, whenever anybody any conversation, particularly around the BBC and Channel Four, perhaps less so on ITV and Channel Five, but they are designated PSB broadcasters. Um everybody assumes what they know. I guess I guess I'm intrigued. Where, who was the first person to define it? When do these words come from? Because if you, I mean, we're, I, we're, I record, like I we're recording this, up. recording this sort of just just over a hundred years since the since the founding yeah. of the BBC. And if you go back the roots that, that deep, there's this sort of interesting mash of um, very noble patrician ideals around what this new technology could be do, used for. And at the same time, a very practical compromise, which is let's set up something that's going to flog radio sets. So, where does where <laughs> this idea of what public service broadcasting is and the things you've articulated? Where when did it first crystallise?
1: Um, it, it didn't. I mean, it was a it was a journey. It was a. It, it even. Reith, John Reith, the first director general of the BBC, who wrote an extraordinarily. Um, a cute book in 1924 called broadcast over britain which understood the and what's absolutely fascinating is he understood the nature of the broadcasting industry and its very particular economics which was once you produce the content the more people that that could listen to it didn't make any difference to the, the 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 cost that went into producing the content and that was very different from most other industries and he kind of Got his way to that very, very quickly. And that that that, as it were, muddle between money and content is, is and his understanding of the nature of the industry. I remember John Tucsa when he was director of the World Service, sort of banging his head against the wall, because he, he knew exactly the same problem was true on the World Service, that once he got the content, the Foreign Office should let him give it to more and more people because it was getting the content that mattered. So where does public service broadcasting come from? It, perhaps it's just worth reminding people that there were some countervailing forces in the 1920s that don't look very old-fashioned right now. Curiously, they might have looked more old-fashioned in
2: 1995
1: than they do now. Mm. because um, that, So... And what were those forces? Those forces were, there was a tradition of something called impartial public service. We'd had it since the Northcott Trevelyan reforms in the 1860s in the civil service. The idea that you could serve different political parties if you're the civil servant, that's actually a really important idea that you would professionalise, you'd be professional, but you could serve the liberals or you could serve the Tories. So that idea that there is something that could be very professional, that could serve different politics is actually rather well developed in Britain and very different from the American system. I mean, the whole, we're always doing things against America, but so that that's actually important. You could be professional, but you can serve different politics. Secondly, the, the, there really was a moment after the First World War when, um, I'm tempted to say, you know, North London townhouse, tofu-eating, uh, anti-growth conspiracy people, but uh, it, it was a much more wide-ranging... I mean, I think there has been, actually, I think there has been, oddly, recently, some sense of a big coalition of public opinion in Britain, which has been rather heartening again, oddly. once felt in step with something way beyond that. But there was an awful lot of people who'd fought in the First World War, either working class people, who'd, you know, the whole streets would die on a day, and middle class people. And wars, wars very, can be very progressive, unfortunate thoughts. So these, these, these working class and, you know, officer class have brought together. And, They're pretty disgruntled at the way in which the war is reported in the newspapers of the time, which didn't feel as if they were reporting the reality that they were experiencing. And there was also one of those transformative moments in which an awful lot of people that fought as officers in the First World War understood that they entirely relied on working class people, people like Macmillan on the right, people like Dalton on the left, they it brought it it, it it was transformative actually in their understanding of what you know the British public was and how able and decent it was, and how they depended on it. But you know, they were pretty hostile to some of the propaganda. And thirdly, there's an entirely reasonable anxiety, which again feels more pressed about. The capacity of this new, rather weird, not well understood technology to be used by ideologues and what they've got in mind. So, British public opinion, very upset by the war, um, be bought by big business, um, influenced by foreign, or indeed they're jolly worried about rated Clydesiders, who we might have some sympathy with, by foreign or domestic ideologues. Um, So can you start to produce some service that that will allow, as Reith says, the British public to make up their minds on moments of matter independently because they've got enough information? So all the, those all they those those were really vivid concerns. I'm not saying, and I don't think PSB. I do wish we could think of another word for it. We all know it. We all bandy it about, but I don't think out there in in the streets of you know Aberystwyth, they really understand quite what we mean. And and that's a failure on our behalf. Actually, I think it's a real failure not to communicate something more about. This 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 ambition, but there was that that all comes together and people assemble um, what it is that public service broadcasting might mean out of off the back of trying to sell content for radios. I think the final thing, which I think is 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 true throughout the history of public service broadcasting, it started off by a load of wet men, really initially men, but very soon really remarkably important women, um, because women always like to move into territories where there aren't too many men squatting on them, (laughs) so they invent things, but um, but public service broadcasting has always been at its best, the BBC's been at best, when it's very expeditionary. Right at the beginning it was very expeditionary. What is it? What can we put on? What will people listen to? It was very expeditionary during the 30s. It was very expeditionary during the Second World War when it was in a sense told to go away and see if it could do it, and it did. During the Cold War, if you look at Channel 4, Channel 4's original remit, a public service remit to make up the territories that the big broadcasters somehow couldn't go into, must be seen, I think, as one of the stepping stones to a contemporary Britain which is very is really remarkably, not perfectly, I'm not saying it's perfect, but very much more comfortable with different cultures and different aspects of itself. And what looked radical when you started channel Four feels normal now, and there's something about that that lesson which gets gets you to an Indian, there's lots of other things you might say, but an Indian-born, an, an Indian prime minister. I, I think his 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 journey to being a prime minister owes one of the steps to Channel Four, actually. So public science broadcasting is always being developed, but it's always best when it's expeditionary.
0: But <clears throat> interestingly, it has, by the sound of it, has a has its has its foundation stones or its keystones, if you like, in in terms of. Um, harnessing a, a, a harnessing technology for distribution of content for the public good, essentially, <laughs> um, that that's very consistent. I mean, you can you can take the, the the exact summary of most Ofcom public service broadcasting reviews, and they all say also very similar things. So that the, the the threads all align. I guess what. Uh, There are two other sets of constituents in here, because in in a sense, there is is an articulate set of policymakers in the public service broadcasting space who who can make these arguments. From your experience, how well understood is the mechanism and the ecosystem in terms of its policy objectives by politicians and regulators? So if you're sitting in the signal box in the number 10 Downing Street Policy unit, and you want certain outcomes to be achieved across either either economically in terms of in terms of investments in in the creative industries, or in terms of some of the things that PSB is meant to deliver around an informed electorate and social mobility and progressive ideas and all the rest of it. How well understood is broadcasting's contribution to that, and therefore how much attention is paid as to how the ecosystem actually delivers it?
1: We you'd add to that list um fantastically smart public investment in the most important set of modern industries. So this isn't this isn't about the past. This is absolutely about a set of industries making content, making films, making television, making games, which are absolutely um uh you you know the future the now and the future and our previous smart investment in public service is the launch pad for that enormously important capacity which has two aspects one of which is just straightforward economic value the second of which is is basically actually a really fabulously exciting employment across the across the, you know, really worthwhile employment. And the third, I suppose, so I said two, but three, and, 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 the, and the third is, is something to do with a, serving us with images of ourselves, but serving the world with images of our competence and creativity and lunacy. I mean, I was very struck that, um, uh, I'm now going to mispronounce him, the Ukrainian president's comedy show which launched him um, was he, he basically plays Mr. Bean in it. <laughs> That's what he plays, you know. He, he the, 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 the 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 dissembling, straightforward but slightly awkward character is is Mr. Bean. I mean, it's it's a variety of other things. So, but, so where does it sit in?
2: Well, sadly, as far as I can see,
1: I guess lower, the, I lower say- and lower in
2: the in in the. In the
1: pecking order, I mean, if you go back to Dominic Cummings' blogs, which have the advantage of being there, Cummings certainly saw uh, a very long time ago. So there was a, there is a political agenda. Saw public service broadcasting and the BBC in particular as an impediment to swinging the pendulum more to the right. Didn't didn't seem to work. That that didn't seem to be very prescient of him because the pendulum, in some sense, did go to the right without destroying um, our public institutions. But um, I think that I think there's something about I think there's two things. One of which is public service broadcasting is a day by day irritant to politicians. I mean, you've, you you hear that it, it, you know they, they don't like being interrogated. Um, why haven't Liz Trust done more homework before she did it, an interview with you know it, it it was because she wasn't she didn't see it as something she had to do homework for, but
2: yeah,
1: um and that's dangerous. But so there's so it's seen as a daily irritant, and you kind of understand that. And um being held to account is jolly irritating. And um certainly previous politicians understandably absolutely understandably have tried to manage that so there's the irritant there's the irritant which is very different from the press in which there are enemies and lapdogs um the second reason is i've always thought the second reason is actually they don't watch anything that, that 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 um mrs thatcher when press did listen she did listen to farming farming today and she did listen to the today program and her husband actually watched a lot of telly and used to tell her about it but there is a there's a curious way in which politicians lives are kind of quite abnormal that they 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 give up going to the theater and going to music, you know, they, they, and that's probably worse than it used to be because they have less time, so they don't understand. And thirdly, I think the really visionary thinking that you need to understand the muddle of technology, content, money, and creativity. It that, 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 takes somebody with a very big brain thinking a lot about it and it's been seen as a political football. And I'm afraid you've got John Whittingdale, who, you know, you know, whose letter I thought to the BBC before Brexit really suggesting that they weren't going to be impartial. I- I'd never seen anything like that. It was a bit of political showing off that perhaps demonstrated that he was less in charge of the pro- of the propriety of the institutions he had to guide than than one would have hoped. So his irritation leaked out into a letter that I thought did have really significant effects, actually. So why don't they think about it? Because it's, it's, it's the modern world. They're not very good at thinking about the modern world. That, that would be, and that Ofcom, which had done some really great thinking about the modern world, has in a sense been, you look at the recent decisions, you look at the recent remit, instead of them outsourcing, thinking about the modern world. So you might say, okay, you have a real problem. This is the most advanced territory of the modern world. How do people understand the world how do we get the right industrial? How do we make these choices against around the streamers? Do we do competition? Is that the right thing? Where is the national interest? And you, you could put it, I think you could put it bigger than that now. Where are the interests of democracies in getting this sphere right? Um, if you don't have time to do it, outsource it to really bright people and give them enough money and freedom to do it.
0: Um, <clears throat> in the uh, in the review that Lord Putnam did uh, around the future of public service television, which I think yes. was the last chart review, uh, probably five, six, seven years ago now, yes. um, Mark Thompson wrote an essay which he ended with uh, with a quote which I suspect you will agree with. Um, public service broadcasting is going, to, is going to become more, not less important to UK audiences, Uh, in the future, and political support for public service broadcasting is weaker than at any time in its history. That growing mismatch is the central problem of current broadcasting policy.
1: Mark Thompson's got a very big brain. (laughs) And he'd also been closer to the modern world because of what he, his experience in America.
0: Across the US, absolutely. Um,
1: And and I think that, I mean, there is obviously a question its just obviously a question, looking out over the generations and indeed the generation of politicians to come, that politics has become a not very nice vocation. And um the experiences that go into politics, I think, have got narrower, but actually as politics has been professionalized. So having the people with the experience of wider public service interests, and I, I think, I, th- I think that, I, um, of course, Mark's absolutely put his finger on it. It seems to me that public service broadcasting is not just. I mean, there, there is a real battle for what a demo- how democracies um, uh, protect decent understanding. I mean, our information spheres have become very polluted, partly by deliberate campaigns from. Um, malign outside players, partly by uh, commercial choices, partly by, you know, the the, the tendency to abandon the middle ground and say that what you want is something called freedom of expression, which tends to be people shouting at each other from opposite ends of the spectrum, which is not freedom of expression in the classic British way. Um, So I think there is a job to be done. I, I just seriously think there's a job to be done about educating politicians, which is about recalibrating politics as a vocation. But that's a big agenda.
0: So um, I'm going to come on to the public next in a, in a, in a second. But I, I just want to stick on the on the policy side for a second. Um, if I mean fundamentally, this set of institutions and interventions and tax breaks and subsidies and funding and license fees and all the rest of it, it is a it is a policy intervention to achieve a set of outputs which we've talked yeah. about. Um, is there evidence that it's successful? And what's behind that is if we have this calibrated system of public service impart- impartiality in news and public service broadcast investment in, in news and current affairs and education and children's media and all the rest of it, is there evidence of success that actually the UK is d- does have a better antidote to fake news and does have more progressive outcomes and, and so on and so on um, based on the fact that this system exists or is that or or is that essentially stories that we tell ourselves to justify what we'd like to happen
1: well there's two things public service broadcasting revenues have been slashed by nearly a half over the last decade so what public service broadcasting could be um is 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 not what it is David um can you hear that's
2: coffee yes no all good all good (laughs) (laughs) Um, um so, the, so so what you need to say that this is not the system that it could be,
1: and that we need it to be as we go forward. Mm. And when I went back to exhibitionary, always in those exhibitionary moments, actually, there was a the <laughs> public service broadcasters were given some money, and in the end, governments conceded that they would become the experts. That they should stop dabbling in the soul of public service broadcasting, but let them go away and, and do and, and have some experiments, some of which might fail. So I don't think that anybody has the answer to the disorders of information. But you know, our vaccine hesitancy rates were far lower than most of our European and much lower than America. That um, there is some quite good evidence from Cardiff that that had something to do. With the role our public service broadcasters played in keeping us informed and 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 um, and understanding and listening to the people who had anxieties, and that was that was re- and that was that interacted actually um, very interestingly with the NHS. You know, so it wasn't just the people who thought they would have a vaccine, but that the NHS really. Um, I, I was on a Zoom with some people, but it sort of was listening really also to what the public service broadcasters were saying about people who they needed to include. So it, it's 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 there's a policy intervention there, which is interesting. Um
2: secondly, um our I mean, however miserably divided we have been, um and there have
1: been moments, I think, of acute crisis around all of our institutions over the last four or five years. Who would have expected Lord Guide to be an absolute hero of our institutional priorities? Um, well, perhaps you would have always expected Lord Guide, but he had to come out and do things. Um, we're not as perilously divided as America is, or indeed as Israel is. I mean, Israel is a very, another very interesting Canary in the cage about democracies. So that's some evidence. If you looked at um, the Pew Center's research on trusted news in America, the BBC, both during the presidential elections, but also subsequently, has become a source of trusted news because it's not seen as so partisan to either side. <clears throat> um, I go, I run a, a unique foreign office course, which Um, is the only one that really is the only one that brings Indians and Pakistanis together. They happen to be journalists. Um, I have to say that even quite sophisticated journalists in India and Pakistan, when you go into their Twitter feeds are now deeply affected by leaving aside the strategic direction particularly in India, around the media, which is very depressing, leaving aside the strategic long-term alliances with Russia. When you went into their Twitter feeds individually, you could see that they were being affected by disinformation campaigns that they didn't understand. I don't know what the answer to that is, but somewhere in the BBC's heft. And, And the final thing I'd say about that is that what's really alarming, I think, around our strategy around dis and misinformation, is that it's very much owned by the security, the securocrats, you know, it's very much owned by the army. If you looked at the last strategic review said, you know, disinformation packed campaigns are really big. Um, If you look at the heads of those security organizations, the wonderful Lindy Cameron, really able in charge of our cybersecurity, those don't feel like people who understand how to talk to the British public
2: Hmm.
1: or represent them or indeed um, battle for freedom, my particular freedom of of argument, let's have freedom of argument modestly. They don't look like they've got the right skills yet they're commanding that space. And yet the public service broadcasters intimately related to the British public have just the skills we need and their institutions they're not i'm going to diss something i really love but I've, for i'm ai was a founding member of an organization called full fact which is the premier british fact checker which is really great but you know going I, as i retired i said you know going around doing fact checks is not really working because it has to be sewed into much more ingenious ways And for instance, gaming, the the middle ranking games who are quite political are really grappling with how you put true information and how you make people assess information. So I I think we've got a set of institutions which are perfect
2: for the future. We have to give them enough policy heft to move into that future.
0: Um, All these things are interconnected, I suspect how important is not only universal availability, so in other words, everybody can get to it, but actually that the, the output is of is consumed at sufficient scale for the institutions to have the effect that delivers those policy objectives?
1: I, you know, both of those really matter. The BBC's struggle for audiences is... Um, I'm particularly concerned about what's happening to BBC local. I mean, it just doesn't meet. I, I go to the BBC in Northern Ireland a lot. I like them because it's a terrible place to have to be the BBC. I mean, it's so pressured, you know, it's so contested. And they, they produce brilliant local and national journalism in something like the Nolan Report that really comes from that really difficult place they're in. Um, it's got to be at scale and that has to be continually reinvented. But can I just get back to policy?
2: One of the things that really worries me around policy is, um, where is the Oxford Internet Institute, which is very well-funded
1: policy in this area? None. Now that is partly because they regard themselves as being so superior to anything, as dreadful as something called the media. But I, th- I think there are real questions about policy. In order to produce policy, you need really bright people with enough money and enough time. And academics don't it, it, it should be able to do that better than they are doing. I mean, if you looked at LSE and children's, that's been quite successful. But I don't think the LSE Media Department is. I mustn't be rude about it. I take that all back, delete that. So I think there's a real issue about where policy used to be generated from, particularly economic policy, actually, and where where that heft comes from. So where's the Resolution Foundation's paper on public service broadcasting? They ought to have done one because public service broadcasting super serves poor people. And so I think there is a sort of I think there's a policy vacuum which could I could sort. I have no problem in sorting that, actually. I need a bit of money and there are bright people coming through PhD programs who need to be set going on it, but they need to be interdisciplinary in a way that people just don't imagine. And I don't think that DCMS, which grew and grew and grew under the magnificent Sue Owen, um, Again, it's been buffeted, as all departments have. So I think think that's a real challenge, but universality is the absolute key. But the people who will sort that is the, let's call them broadcasters, but the public service content providers across the range. And we need to slab some heads together.
0: How important is breadth of of output in a world where, The availability of content free to air. I mean, all of us could spend our entire lives watching YouTube, of which there is enormously an enormous range, but extraordinary quality. Um, You have to hunt for it, but it's all there. Um, How important is range? Given that another way of looking at this is, um, it strikes me that the, the the idea David Putnam described. PSB is sort of, a, it's a national health service for the mind. You know, you have to, yes. you can, if you can justify one for physical health, you can justify one for, for cultural, political, social, democratic health um, and the way our minds work, <clears throat> which means that there has to be a range of content to do that. The alternative, which I suspect has crept up over the course of the last 20, 30 years, is essentially the market won't always work. So we get it. And there's a, there's a, um, there's a need to intervene in genres where the market won't work properly, of which children's, um national and international news, regional and local news, um are, are sort of the, the genres that are held up. Um it strikes me that the original model of um uh I can't remember which which BBC DG it was, but you know the, the PSB is essentially it's it's the it's the ticket to a, to leading a full life. It's a very patrician view of the world. But essentially um it is <laughs> It's, uh, David Henber said, "This is you know you don't measure this by height of brow. There is great there is great so-called low brow stuff that everybody should watch, and there's great so-called highbrow stuff that everybody should watch. But how important is it that 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 breadth and range of content is made available versus actually focusing on the bits that the market will no longer provide?"
2: Um, well, I'm <laughs> I struggle with this. Because I think, on the one hand, I think the BBC,
1: for instance, will be—it will be a mistake just to cut a little bit off everything to become you, until you become irrelevant in everything.
2: Um, and my other sort of sense is that the best content that speaks
1: for and with and about us comes from that odd combination of the, the way in which something called information and news is embedded in other kinds of programming. That, that, and I mean, if you went back to um, Attenborough, you know, if you went back to Attenborough, what? why, who is worshiped by young people and the BBC and public service broadcasters across the climate change, i.e. Young people in the future, organisations is being is seen is really seen, and I think they need to be activated. Actually, I think there's a sort of job to be done. Um, uh, is seen as absolutely fundamental to understanding of what's happening in climate change. Without without those public service broadcasters, you just you don't get anywhere. It's a really fundamental thing. So, if you think of why Attenborough works, you, you know I've had several PhDs on. You know why it's all anthropomorphic, and you know whatever. And and it is true that he he his programmes have always and they've developed um, um, had taken in pure science as best understood at one end, yeah. and pure dramatic output as best understood at the other end, and a sense of narrative and a sense of storytelling, um, and that comes out of the all of the genres. Do you I mean, it it comes out of all of it. So my argument is really that if you only have news, then news is less dramatically made. If you look at Ross Atkins, 10 Minute Explainers, where did that little genius of an idea come come from? Well, there's something about his rather flat face when he does it. What does he think? We don't know what he thinks. So that comes absolutely out of some news tradition. But the idea of an individual performer almost undoubtedly comes out of the soliloquy. I mean, he may not think he's Shakespeare, but it is a soliloquy. It's a soliloquy shoved together with impartial, well-informed news. So I I, I worry that if you disaggregate, and children's, I've got classically, pathetically, you always get, I've, I've now got a couple of tiny grandchildren. Um, who live in Italy? And you know, PSB content isn't trivially isn't for children. Isn't about trivial kindness. A lot of cartoons are about being trivially kind. It, it it's much more grainy than that. So I think those values. If you looked at Strictly Come Dancing, which I suppose is the obvious, or or the the um, what's the program about mending things?
0: Um, uh, the repair shop
1: the repair shop have very very benign values they have very public service values driving the people in them you know, you don't laugh at people in you do laugh you laugh with them but not at them in the repair shop sometimes the the things don't look as if they're worth saving but they are saving so there's something that for me there's something in the repair shop which is about history actually all historians a repair shop people you go out and find something and say oh I can make this work oh look you didn't know that was useful Ooh. so so that's a long answer but I, I I but it all gets down to money and the, the, the answer I don't have is how you fund public service broadcasting as you go forward but I don't think that's
0: my job to come answer. on to that in a second come on to that in a second I mean <clears throat> I just want to loop back to your idea of being expeditionary because um I think if you were to do a sort of a blind Pepsi versus Coca-Cola taste taste test on a David Attenborough documentary that's on the BBC versus the other documentaries that he's also done for Sky and Netflix yeah. and others, <clears throat> I suspect that the average punter wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So if you're there... He changed the game. and 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 therefore what leads back to okay let me raise one so so hang on just just let me finish the thought so what that leads back to is the expeditionary piece which is the reason he can do that on those other platforms is not only that he's a brand and he's been discovered but because he's he, he created the genre in the first place um similarly there's nothing uh i suspect they are more different uh as a format but I don't know which network in the States, I can't remember which network in the States carries um, Dancing with the Stars, which is essentially Strictly Come Dancing sold by BBC Studios. Um, the benign values you talk about on Strictly are no less benign, and the stories are no less heartening, and the impact, there's, there may be slightly less emphasis on, uh, on, diverse, on, on some of the things that, that Strictly's done around diversity over here. Maybe, I don't know. But it's still fundamentally the same show. And, but it's not on. It's on. A, it's on a rampantly commercially funded broadcaster, as opposed to being on the BBC. So it gets back to this idea, perhaps of, of of the expeditionary piece, which is around the innovation, which just strikes me gets harder and harder to make the argument that people should be spending their their hard earned money in a cost of living crisis creating TV formats for the social yeah. good. I don't know what you think about that.
2: Um, formats.
1: So of course, Attenborough was one of the Attenborough was one of the, I mean, he's very hard-nosed um, and Attenborough always knew he wanted to break into America and he fought battles uphill and downhill, Dandale, down to be the voice in America, to be the person who was the presenter. He knew exactly what he was doing. Um, is he I think he's ultimately motivated by a sense that there's an environment to be saved. Actually, so I think there are values in him. Uh, what's the problem with us creating great formats, which have generous public service values in them, and then them working around them being sold around the world? I don't. I I, I I think that because those formats also work for us. The other example that's in everybody's mind would be Peaky Blinders. Nobody from outside Britain would have made a program about slightly goth gangsters in Birmingham. I mean, it doesn't sound very appealing. Um, So creating formats that then, of course, go on to make money for our public service broadcasters as well has two really good effects, one of which is they are public service formats. I mean, um, things that I hated, like what was the thing where you shoved people into a house?
0: Um, Uh, Big Brother.
1: I loathed Big Brother. Why couldn't they all be made to read books, I thought, improve themselves?
0: Although, um, although I'm just going to jump in there. Um, I worked, worked as well at Channel 4, but this anecdote, I think, was before my time. Big Brother was the moment that Michael Portillo realised that the Tory party didn't understand what was going on in contemporary society.
2: But,
1: uh, absolutely very good. Very good example of, of, of this isn't... If you can affect Willie Whitelaw or Michael Portillo... You've, you've you've had an effect, but all I'm saying is formats that come from those values, which are not the same values uh, as Netflix has got, inevitably, you know, Netflix is there in the end to make great programs, but also to make money, but public service broadcasts are there to find out what we care about and, and how daft we are and how, to some extent, how nasty we are. Um, and how conflicted we are and tell stories out about that. If you can make a format that then goes out worldwide, that seems to have two advantages to me. A, those values are on the whole universal. I mean, that's what I'd say about public service forecasting. They're not British values. They're about decency, respect, um, wit, um, uh, pushing things to edges. Those Those aren't contest. Those are actually universal values, but they have a very, they're not commercial values. And um, being allowed to fail, um, is something that all creativity needs to be able to be allowed to do. I mean, you know, famously, lots of things don't work. So, a the values in them are good things, and b that makes money for our, for our industry and att- attracts attention to the wider. The wider terrain of British creativity as being something you want to invest in because it makes really good formats. I, I mean, I don't think that's a problem. But it's it is like... the, the creativity and the expeditionariness
2: has always been part of public service broadcasting. It can experiment more and it ought to. Um,
0: institutions versus remits next topic uh there've been conversations over the years around um uh, and there's most recently been one uh, not really through top slicing but through some some using money that was left over for for a contestable fund for children's yeah. um what are your thoughts on uh on the, the the pros and cons of kind of marshalling this into institutions versus saying actually there's no reason why Uh, a YouTube or a Netflix or a Sky couldn't be producing public service content. And so long as it was made free to air and universally available, uh, why shouldn't they have the chance to bid for public money to make great stuff?
2: Um, Well, wearing another hat, um, I think that institutions are what keeps us, us safe.
1: I mean, in some profound way, I think the governance of institutions and some sense of their longevity and um, some sense of the propriety around them, what they will do
2: and what they won't do. Um, uh, are, and you, if I may say so, you've seen the vulnerability,
1: but also the strength of institutions all over the world as a real problem over the last seven or eight years. So, everywhere has institutions, and how far you can actually make them independent, how far they will stand up to pressure. So, I am
2: unequivocally um, an institutionalist um, because.
1: Um, I mean, there is a, you know, was the SS an institution? The, the, there's a huge academic argument about that. But on the whole, democratic institutions have fail-safe mechanisms with them. And you've seen it around the civil service, you've seen it around the courts, you see it around, there One even say it, the monarchy, which in the last instance, you know, calls or doesn't call elections. So Mr. Johnson had to go. Um, so I'm, a, I'm an institutionalist. Um, so it's worth putting that out. And that's because I think you can hold institutions to account and they can change. We can never hold Netflix to account. It's nothing to do with us. So that's one reason. The second reason is drift. You, you, I was opposed, I completely understood why, why the children's broadcasters wanted the top slicing. Um, I completely understood I would have done if I was them. And what they were really looking at was a dire cutting, particularly in ITV, of um, the resources for something that we'd done very well. Um, nevertheless, I would never have top sliced because I don't think it's the way to grow really good new talent. It's better to have an institution managing it so i i just thought it was a way of cutting the bbc really i mean that's what i thought it was just a way it's an underhand way of getting at the public service broadcasters dressed up as something new but i understood why the children's broadcasters needed it but the real reason is because um netflix and amazon who are in trouble i might say you know they're in trouble these aren't perfect they aren't the perfect future that everybody thought they were um, they're not accountable to our political and social mores or indeed our institutional. So it doesn't work, it just doesn't work. Whereas in the end, if the BBC gets things wrong, and of course the BBC does get things disastrously wrong, if, you know, Gita Murphy uses an obscene word off, off camera, uh, which he shouldn't have done, he gets stood down for a bit. The, these the, these institutional structures we can look at them, which is why I care about things that I understand that the British the British public, and again I think we fail doesn't really care about, which is the governance of these
0: institutions <clears throat> governance is where I was going next. I mean if you look at the <clears throat> the kind of shape-shifting of governance that's happened particularly over the BBC over the, I guess only the last twenty five years or so yeah. from from uh, governors of the great and good. Um, through the trust, through uh, the sort of the independent board structure at the moment, and the ability for governments to nudge and intervene along that uh, along that path, um, is it is is it about as good as we can get in terms of um, a, a accountability, but also independence?
2: Um,
1: I wrote an article when the last shift take set took place, saying, however, whatever the virtues of the new organisation is, every time there's a a challenge to the BBC, you change the governance, you begin to chill
2: the governance. So I, I kind of, I, I kind of think you need to stick with something. Um, um let, let me put it another way, which is a very unfashionable way.
1: So there is there is a whole argument, there's a whole basically left-wing argument that the BBC has always been part of the establishment, and its government shows that its government shows that it's always been subject to political interference. And really, it's it's a dream of um, uh, um, you know establishment that kind of argument, establishment right wing control. That's quite fashionable on uh, the young left, and I kind of understand it. Um, and it kind of weirdly mirrors the right wing attack, which is that the BBC's you know a bastion of 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 out uh, of touch um, uh, urban elites. And Roger Mosey's quite interesting book on news does does make some really good points, I think, about um the way in which some views are potentially entrenched in the BBC, though the BBC is trying to change that. So th- it's not that I don't take those arguments seriously,
2: but um, governments, and I would certainly, I think now,
1: say that you needed an independent body, but well understanding that independent bodies come under, get kicked too, to set the license fee level. I mean, it, 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 these are these are these are all checks and balances in our system. Um, that governments have some relationship to the BBC uh, governance and Channel Four's governance, and that they understand it. Now I'll come back to the shocking, shocking intervention in Channel Four's report. I mean, that's you know you have to have somebody that draws lines and brave enough people to say you've duffed overstepped, and we're not going to put up with it. Um, some in, in, interest is not actually curiously antithetical to those to those institutions' ongoing survival. They're not there to be the loyal opposition. They're there to be both the loyal to, to put the case of the loyal opposition and and the government. So I think it's complicated. I would go back to really interesting issues about the quality of people who get appointed to those boards. And whether they're chosen as Lord Bew and Peter Riddle, you know, those radical left wing managers of the public appointments process, would say were really able. And when we looked at the appointment to the chair of Ofcom,
2: that was... um, a deeply compromised process in which, I mean, you know,
1: you, you have to choose the best people with the best skills, not because they're, and they may or may not be friends. And it's that um, both, as it were, the left attack and the right attack assume that ability isn't the issue. For me, this is a very unfashionable word meritocracy, ability range and representativeness in those appointments really matter and that's what we have to think about how do people get onto those boards what pool is called on what capacities do they bring to those institutions and poor old bbc in northern ireland still doesn't have a governor hasn't had a governor for years how do the how do the interest of Really contested part of the United Kingdom's public understanding of itself. How is that best represented by the governor from Wales? It's it's kind of mad and improper.
0: Conscious of time, so I'm going to just draw some of these ju- just draw some of these threads together. Lord Burt famously has said, um, I think towards the end of his time as DG, uh, "Don't let things happen to you." Um, Mark Thompson has, uh, I think, in uh, both both has written and also and I think in our, in our conversation on the on the podcast. Um, has just said, you know, the the person in the room who enters the room with a plan um, tends to be uh, it, it 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 tends to be that plan for better or worse that gets uh, yeah. uh, that 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 makes it through in the end. Um, and I, you've commented as well. I think just a a, a, a quote I think which was around um, uh, Lord Hall's time. The BBC is well led if it has policies in place for the next fifteen years in this way. It can think more strategically than governments. How confident are you at the moment? That that kind of thinking is being done. And if you think back with a historical historical perspective, if you were, I mean, if you were, you are um, in the in the kind of policy circles that are thinking about what happens next. What's the right way, as an industry and as a set of, um, uh, of thinkers and policy practitioners, to to kind of tackle this this issue as to how do we sustain this uh, going forward and sustain the best bits and, and reform the bits that don't work, and make it set, make it sense for an entirely new set of economics and technologies and audience behaviours and all the rest of it? And one of the things that, um, or two of the ideas that have, that have come up, which I'd love your love your thoughts on. There have been times in the past where a Pilkington review or a Peacock review has come in and just said, This is this is too complicated. Let's put some people over here to, to really think this through, because we need we need the time and space to do that. Um, the other idea that's cropped up is uh, is essentially citizen assembly. So if this is if this really is our BBC, um, it's perfectly possible to get uh wise citizens involved to come up with and say, well, these are the bits that really work for us and these don't which lays out from a policy and, and politician perspective, actually, these are the guidelines. These are the, the this is the tram lines that we've uh, we've got to operate down as we think these things through. So it's a, it's a very broad set of questions, but coming from your perspective as a historian, lots that I'm sure you'd want to see sustained going forwards, but lots of things that need to adjust going forward. How do we bridge those two? And and is the right thinking being done at the moment?
2: Um. First thing to say is both Pilkington was there, was designed
1: to give uh, uh, what became BBC2 to ITV, but the BBC deflected it. And there's, a, there's a really interesting minor historical note, which is Lord Asa Briggs, who was the BBC's historian, hated Hugh Green, who is my absolute hero as a um, DG, because Hugh Green lent on, Briggs thought he was leaning on him in the run-up to Pilkington. So that's kind of quite interesting. And um, we ran a big seminar years ago now um, on peacock, and we managed to squeeze out of Sam Britton, who was the impeccably dry um, economist from the FT who was supposed to deliver the impeccably dry answer Mrs Thatcher really wanted, and in the end Sam suddenly, right at the end of two days, was going at him. Really, he was wonderful, wonderfully odd, very, very extraordinary human being. Sam, Sam Britton he suddenly exploded and said, oh, "I'm just I
2: trying to save the BBC," which is what we'd known all the way through. Um, um, I, th- I think that you. Always need super bright
1: economists with a real feeling for contemporary economic situations and markets. That, that's way beyond my capacity, but that's what you need. You need not ideological, but you need the equivalent of you know Andrew Graham at Balliol, thinking ahead. But those 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 and it may be in somewhere like somebody like Diana Coyle has some of that capacity, but you probably need dryer and to the writer of her. So you need, my experience of all government policies that in the end you need people who really do understand how the markets are working, but who've got the values, you know, they're, they're seeking to work out how the values work. They're not just looking at market competition secondly you need a broad view of the national interest this is not just any industry it's one of our most important industries so you need somebody with a with a real understanding of the national interest and where that lies which isn't which is beyond partisan politics
2: really thirdly um i don't feel, but I may be wrong that there's enough policy
1: excitement and heft around this territory. So when I look at young people coming through universities, um, and that's another issue. I don't feel that. These policy areas, which have, which, as we've already said, are the crossover between politics, economics, all good economists are really about politics. You know, that's what they're really about. So I worry that the bigger world of policy
2: making has been co-opted by consultants with interests. You know, um, it used to be the t- it used to be the thing, thing that you know. You, I'd go into
1: a room, you know, I'd go into a room, and I'd realise that absolutely everybody was paid twenty times as much as me because they were all there to say something to the minister, but they were paid to do it, whereas my only job was to say something to the minister, but nobody was paying me to do it. Um, uh, uh, so I, I I I I really worry, and places where there were real policy development like Ofcom, which is a place that produced, you know, generations of policy thinkers, um, isn't doing that anymore. So I have hopes, but I'm worried about that bigger policy network. And the other thing that I think isn't being done well is really connecting across to European policymakers who Still call on the BBC as the the model, but I mean, I think we need to be convening big conferences. Your next thing should be to convene a big conference, really get the Germans in the room and really thrash out what's good and what's bad, really get the Swedes in the room who've got their own problems. Um, So I just worry that there isn't the intellectual heft, though I can see places where there ought to be.
0: Gene, uh, we'll draw to a close there. Conscious of your time, you've been enormously generous with your time and expertise and energy. Um, I'm sure this debate will roll on, so we would love to involve you in uh, in the next steps as they as they come out. Uh, so thank you again.
1: And thank you very much. I couldn't I couldn't overemphasise how important I think the quality of these discussions matter
0: for all of us. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Gene. Take care.
2: Okay. Thanks so much. Bye bye.
0: In our next episode, we delve deeper into one of the genres that everyone agrees is central to the past, present and future of public service broadcasting, namely news and current affairs. I'm joined by Stuart Purvis, whose career in broadcast journalism included being editor of of Channel 4 News and the CEO of ITN, before becoming content and standards partner at Ofcom in charge of the broadcast code. More recently, he's become an academic and a writer, both at City University and Oxford, And he draws on all of that experience to explain why in his view PSB is so vital for news and why news is so vital for PSB. Do remember to subscribe and I look forward to seeing you again soon.